0: Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation, so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Today we cover what is probably the most controversial case in reincarnation law. The Bridie Murphy case. This case caused a sensation in its day and a lot of misconceptions remain about the case and the people involved. I think it's important to get a picture of who Maury and Virginia were as their reputations and character were called into question when the sessions became public knowledge and I think it might help you to make up your own mind if you know who the main players were and what they were like. On April 27, 1923, Virginia Burns-Tye was born. Her parents divorced and Ginny, as she was known, went to stay with an aunt in Chicago, who will later play a part in the story. When she was 20 years old, she married an American soldier who was killed a year later. After his death, she moved to Colorado and met a local car dealer, Hugh Bryan-Tye, and they married and had three children. The family later moved to Pueblo, Colorado, and it was there that she met Murray Bernstein. Virginia was 29 years old at the time. So, Murray Bernstein is always described as a bit of a flake and is portrayed as a party animal who dabbled in hypnotism for its wow factor. However, in the book, he appears to be a man who didn't enjoy the social events that Brian and Virginia enjoyed and spoke of having to endure the cocktail parties and endless socialising so that he could try and entice Virginia into being hypnotised again. His friend Joe Bullen recalls him very differently than his standard image. Maury Bernstein's family came to America to flee the pogroms of Russia Pogroms were large-scale, targeted and repeated riots against Jewish inhabitants of countries that Russia had taken over, and Jewish people were being murdered indiscriminately. His family arrived in America and decided to settle in Pueblo, where he opened a junkyard with scrap metal as a speciality. This early beginning evolved into a thriving family business called the Bernstein Brothers Equipment Company. Maury was an excellent businessman, a serious thinker and an innovator, patenting a version of snap-together fencing and buying military surplus jeep engines and putting them into tractors that he sold for $500. By the time Maury met Virginia Thai, he served on the board of directors for three companies and a bank. Before he began his investigation into hypnotic regression, he was an atheist who scoffed at the concept of life after death. While attending a party in the early 1940s, Maury saw a friend perform a hypnotism to amuse the assembled guests. Maury was hooked and started studying intently, researching Edgar Cayce's books before becoming an amateur hypnotist himself. Initially, his interest was in the healing aspect of hypnosis, having fractured his neck at high school when practical jokers threw him in a pond, misjudging the depth of the water. After months of arduous rehabilitation and still suffering from back pain and metabolism problems, he thought hypnotism might be the answer to his chronic pain problems. However, somewhat ironically, he was deeply disappointed to discover that he was incapable of being hypnotised himself. However, his interest remained and he found it gratifying to be able to help people suffering from health issues or trying to improve their lives. So for several years, he treated people for stuttering, migraines and other afflictions like smoking cessation and insomnia without charge. He then began experimenting with age regression and he became intrigued to see if there was anything that could be remembered from before the person's current life. Virginia Ty and her husband were acquaintances of Murray Bernstein and Bernstein didn't know the Ty's very well, but they moved in the same social circles. Ginny had agreed to let Bernstein hypnotise her twice before, hoping it might help alleviate her allergies. Morrie found she was capable of entering a true trance state and could remember nothing of what had occurred when she woke up. Keen to try his experiment with Virginia because of her excellent receptiveness to hypnotism, he persuaded her until finally on a Saturday evening on November 29, 1952, Maury hypnotised Virginia again and guided her into a trance. In the first session, Maury regressed Ginny to a time prior to her current life, wherein she started speaking in an Irish accent, saying she'd scratched the paint off a metal bed at the age of four and that she got an awful spanking. When asked her name, she said Friday Murphy. As the session continued, she corrected the pronunciation of her name, saying it was not Friday, but Bridey short for Bridget. Morrie took her to the age of eight and asked what year it was and she said 18 something? 1806? When asked if she meant 1806, Virginia replied "Uh uh-huh. Over a 10-month period commencing from November 1952, Murray hypnotised Virginia six times, recording and transcribing the sessions, which he used as the source material for the book he wrote in '56 called The Search for Bridy Murphy. So Murray was delighted with the first session and with the information he recorded while Virginia was under hypnosis. But the ties were somewhat less enthusiastic. They weren't sure if reincarnation was real or not, but they did know that it would not sit well with the religious members of their families, fearing that they would be deeply offended by the couple agreeing to the sessions. Also, Hugh didn't like his wife being hypnotised and placed a few rules on what would be allowed in the sessions, also insisting that any further sessions must be less than an hour in length. This made things difficult for Morrie, as it limited the time that he actually had to speak to Virginia while she was in a trance as it took time to hypnotize her and bring her back out of it. Hugh refused to allow any discussions on intimate matters or anything that would confuse or upset Virginia and he didn't want her to be unduly fatigued. According to Morrie, he ended up becoming a loyal fan when he realized that Virginia would not have to see Maury permanently on an ongoing basis. Virginia herself had concerns about her privacy and didn't want the tapes released for public consumption. Despite these concerns, the sessions did go ahead. Rumours started to percolate through the town of Pueblo that something was up. Shortly after the third session, a friend of Murray's researched details provided by Virginia about Bridie's life. Further verification efforts in Ireland were arranged following the final session and were carried out by an Irish law firm, librarians and other investigators who were independent of Morrie. The problem was that no registers of births, marriages or deaths were maintained in the area before 1864 and it very quickly became apparent that finding information was going to be a lot more difficult than initially thought. So as we mentioned, Murray Bernstein had written a book about the sessions and it was due to be released in the fall of 1955. So due to the time constraints, the decision was made to only include the information that had been confirmed by the early part of the year. And that would become a problem as the story unfolded further. The regressions were first published in three parts under the title The Strange Search for Bridie Murphy in the Empire, which was the Sunday magazine of the Denver Post, and that happened in September 1954. Maury's book was released in January 1956, and a second edition with added verifications was published in 1965. So as mentioned before, Virginia Tide did not want the tapes released and was worried about her privacy, so she was given the pseudonym of Ruth Simmons in the book. The Chicago Daily News, which was publishing the book as a serial, sent its London reporter to Ireland for three days to verify additional facts to no avail. However, William J. Barker, a reporter for the Denver Post, spent three weeks there and wrote a 12-page supplement entitled The Truth of Bridie Murphy on March 11, 1956, providing the information that he'd been able to verify. So the book became a bestseller almost as soon as it was published, spending 26 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, with 200,000 copies sold in two months. Books on hypnosis increased their sales 25-fold, and LP Records of the Hypnosis Sessions sold 30,000 copies. In 1956, Paramount Studios turned the book into a motion picture, starring Theresa Wright as Ty, Lewis Haywood as Bernstein, and four different actresses as Bridie Murphy at different stages in her life. So as soon as the hypnotherapy sessions became common knowledge, Bridie Murphy fever took over. In today's terms, you'd say it went viral. People started having come-as-you-were parties, Newspapers ran cartoons of parents holding newborns and saying welcome back, and Walt McChrystal from the Doctors' Club of Houston made a cocktail in Bridie Murphy's honour. I'll include the recipe on my Facebook page for those of you planning to have a come-as-you-were party, because I certainly am. So from all of the above, it sounds like Bridie took the world by storm, but not everyone was delighted with Maury's recordings. The scientific and religious communities were extremely sceptical of the recollections and both waded into the fray, bringing their considerable influence to bear. Maury's lack of time to find all of the facts now bit him hard as the scientific community decried his research methods, implying he was naive at being so quick to believe and publicize the tapes without doing proper research first. Christians were also up in arms, claiming that mankind is on earth to effectively prove his worth to God, so that he may live in eternal peace with the Lord Almighty. They decried Bridie's account that she remained bound in a half-life to the mortal plane, and that there was no God in Bridie's version. The issue divided the interested parties into two camps, the sceptics and the believers. The sceptics started to question the truth of Bridie's account and vigorously set upon throwing doubt upon Ginny's recollections. William Randolph Hearst obviously agreed with the sceptics because he ran two articles in three of his publications debunking the case. Unfortunately, enough of their mud stuck to leave the Bridie Murphy case in a kind of limbo with a division of opinion about the veracity of the case. So to give you the chance to make up your own mind I'm going to list all of the facts of Bridie's life that were revealed in the book. I'm going to cover the story and the debunk at once and I'm going to put the information listed in as much chronological order as I can rather than in the order the events were transcribed as I feel it'll make it a lot less confusing to listen to. If I don't add any information then that point was either not debunked or not even brought into the debate. There seem to have been only a very few of the many, many facts that Virginia Ty remembered that were questioned. The information you're about to hear has been gained from all of the sessions Murray and Virginia went through together and from some extremely useful sites like Science Encyclopedia. It's an extremely difficult story to put together, I have to say, as there's a great deal of information to try and verify. So bear with me, we're all in for quite a journey. So to be strictly chronological, Virginia only has one very patchy memory of the life before Bridie Murphy, involving her death as an infant in New Amsterdam, which was the original settlement site of New York. It sounds to me like this was a very painful death, as every time Virginia was taken to that life, she reacted as if in pain and spoke of pain in her leg and arm. Maury asked her if she remembered other lives while on the other side and Virginia said she could remember some things, but not much, as she was only a baby, and she seemed quite vague and confused by them. So with regards to her memories of Ireland, Bridie Murphy was born on December 20, 1798. She had a reddish sort of hair, just like her father. She may have been named after her grandmother, Bridget. Bridie's mother was Kathleen. She was a woman of medium height and build with black hair. Bridie's father was a tall man named Duncan who was a barrister. He also did some cropping to grow things and that was the word that Virginia used and according to Encyclopedia Britannica it refers to growing crops and their rotation to renew and replenish the soil. So it sounds like Bridie's father was one of the Protestant landowners because the family was Protestant. Maury always wondered if her provision of barrister as an occupation for the men in her life may have been Bridie's way of, shall we say, enhancing the importance of their roles. So Virginia listed Bridie's address as being at the Meadows at Cork. Bridie described her house as being a nice house. It's a wood house, white. It has two floors and Bridie has a room upstairs. You go upstairs and to the left. It's very nice. That was her description of the house. And this is a point that the sceptics pounced on, saying that Brighty's claim that the house was made of wood was in error, as there were no wood houses in the meadows. They claimed that most of the houses of the time were made of stone. However, the ultimate theory was put up that the word "wood" may have been a transcription error and that Bridie really said good, as a two-story house would indeed have been a good house at the time and would have been the property of someone who was at least comfortable, if not wealthy. So the problem I have with Bridie living in the meadows is that when you research Mardike Meadows, which is the area known as the meadows, while it definitely existed the area was largely left uninhabited by houses, as it was mainly marshy ground that the Lee River was prone to flooding. So the area at that time was used more as a park, a cricket ground or a recreational area. According to the Cork Heritage website, there was a red tea house that was erected, and gardens were built around that. But the only residence built on Mardike Meadows was owned by the Beamish family, whose family history doesn’t fit the facts that Virginia related. However, directly across the Lee River, from Mardike Meadows, is a small community known as Sunday's Well, which does have quite a few houses which fit the style and period that Bridie describes. So when I talk about it being across the river, the riverbank of Sunday's Well is approximately 50 metres, or 164 feet, away from the banks of Mardike Meadows. I'm wondering whether people didn't just say they lived in the meadows, as that was the biggest landmark to describe their location. When I was growing up, my home address was listed as Ballarat, even though officially we lived in a suburb called Mount Pleasant. Even the town hall addressed its correspondence to us at Ballarat. It wasn't until I was in my late teens that the address was officially classified to its official suburb of Mount Pleasant, and we were told we must use it. Is it possible that a similar thing happened in Bridie's case? Because I find it remarkable that Virginia mentioned the Meadows at all, which is quite an obscure reference to a suburb that most people wouldn't know. But to continue on, her grandfather was also known as Duncan, as was her father and brother. Now that might seem odd to younger listeners, but in the 1800s, male lineage was important and names were often passed down, particularly male names, from father to son, and actually the same occurred for women as well. Bridie had one living brother. His name was listed in the family Bible as Duncan Blaine Murphy. So Bridie had another brother who died as a baby from the black something. The black death is the most logical assumption to make about Bridie's reference, and at first glance, it looks like that fact is wrong. As the black death, or bubonic plague, happened in the 14th century. But in fact, Ireland had many more outbreaks of the Black Death, with the last occurring in 1900. So it is possible that Bridie's brother did die of the Black Death. However, by the late 1700s and early 1800s, the most common epidemics that were occurring were typhus and dysentery, with smallpox also being a major cause of death. Another important fact was Bridie's grandfather refused to speak in Gaelic. He would say Gaelic is fit only for the tongues of the peasants and he would tell his grandchildren that they were not allowed to speak it. Now this is a very interesting snippet as Gaelic was indeed not accepted for many years in Ireland. It wasn't officially banned but its usage was discouraged. By the laws of the statutes of Kilkenny in 1366 English colonists were forbidden by law to use it and the Irish were forbidden to use it when speaking to the English. Then the Great Potato Famine happened from 1845 to 1852, and that pretty much wiped out the poorer classes in Ireland. More than 1 million people died, and 1.5 million emigrated to America, which almost obliterated the speaking of Irish Gaelic. So Irish Gaelic was indeed the language spoken by the poorer classes and would have been considered a common or vulgar language by the Protestant landowners of the 1700s, which is when Bridie's grandfather would have been living. Protestants and Catholics remained largely divided communities and the majority of the population were Catholic, which would have been another reason that Bridey's grandfather would have disliked it, but I'll go into that later. So at four years of age, Bridie described that she scratched the paint off her metal bed that had just been painted to make it beautiful and she got an awful spanking for it. Life magazine tried to debunk this piece of information saying that metal beds weren't available in Ireland in the 1800s. Tomorrow magazine found an advertisement for metal beds that were being made by a cork ironworks in 1830. Bridie remembered reading The Sorrows of Deirdre at eight and related that it was a book about a beautiful girl who was going to marry a Scottish king, but she didn't love him, and this boy came and saved her, but they were betrayed and brought back. They killed Deirdre's lover, and Deirdre committed suicide. She said everyone in Ireland reads it. In the book, Deirdre's six gifts were listed as beauty, a gentle voice, sweet words, wisdom, skillet needlework, and chastity. And Virginia's recall of the story is perfect, and she was able to name all of those six virtues under hypnosis. Live claimed that there was no book entitled The Sorrows of Deirdre until 1905, but William Barker found a version dated 1808. Bridie remembered songs, stories, books and poetry. She knew of the Irish mythic hero Cucallan. She remembered a book called Tales of Enter* and The Green Bay, Songs entitled "Londonry Air," which is an ode to County Londonderry, and it's sung to the tune of "Danny Boy." Other songs were "Sean," "The Minstrel's March," and she liked poetry by Keats, even though she remarked that he was a Britisher. One of the debunks that people often discuss is that at one point in her recollection, Bridie recounts that Brian had other names, and that he was called Sean while he was in church, but she pronounces it Sián. So the debunkers made much of this, asking why Bridie didn't use the Irish pronunciation of it, which is Sean. In fact, when coming across the name Sean, as in reference to the song I've just mentioned, Bridey does indeed say Sean. The only time she refers to Sean as Sian is when talking about Brian being called this in the church, which makes me wonder if the word she's thinking of sounds like Sian, but isn't actually Sean. And why would he be called Sean in the church when his name was Brian? So Jenny, as Bridie, said she knew a dance called the Morning Jig. Bernstein asked her to perform it when awake She hesitated at first on waking but then as Maury writes suddenly her whole expression changed and her body became vibrantly alive. Her feet were flying out in a cute little dance. There was a nimble jump and then the dance seemingly ended with a routine which involved pressing her hand to her mouth in a mock yawn. Bridie then reverted to Virginia and had no idea what she'd done. So I did a quick google search to see if there were any jigs with mourning in the title and I found two both of which were published before 1806. One was called A Lark of the Morning, which recounts a ploughboy's life and then often goes on to recount a sexual encounter with a maiden that results in a pregnancy. In the lyrics, mention is made of the lark rising in the morning off her nest and going home in the evening with the dew on her wings, so possibly the yawn might have been a reference to the lark returning to her nest. The other is called Up in the Morning Early and was first produced in 1695 by John Playford, an English bookseller, publisher, and minor composer. With regard to the book The Green Bay, I couldn't find any reference to it, and Maury himself said he couldn't find one either. But the Irish investigators he hired reported that there was such a book, in fact, more than one. With regards to the tales of Enter, I think she actually means Emma which is spelt E-M-E-R, as Emma was the woman the mythic warrior Kukalan wanted to marry and Bridie was very aware of the story of Kukalan. As children, Bridie and Duncan played Fancy, which was a board game that had squares on it. The cards would tell them how many times they could move and the first one back would reward themselves with a treat, or the children would claim each other's toy or candy or some little trinket. She said that was something she just made up with her brother and I think she means that it wasn't part of the real rules of the game. There is a similar board game that's North American in origin called Pegs and Jokers where cards are used to determine how far a player can move using wooden pegs that move around the board and it's the same idea of the first home wins. So perhaps this might be a transposition of memory from Virginia's childhood. She could remember saying grace at meals and recited one of the prayers Bless this house in all the weather, keep it gay in springy heather, bless the children, bless the food, keep us happy, bright and good. Virginia remembered a birthday party when she was seven and Mary was there. Mary did the cooking, so she was possibly a maid or a house cook. At around the age of eight, Bridie pulled the straw off the roof of the barn with her brother Duncan. Straw roofs were used in architecture at the time. When her mother discovered her doing this she received a spanking and was sent to her chamber with nothing to eat. Her brother came to the door of her room and told her he was sorry as it was really his idea. He'd also got into trouble and had a spanking but his regret was that he talked Bridie into it by saying he wouldn't play with her anymore if she didn't because she hadn't really wanted to do it. Virginia tells us that when Bridie was 10 she went on holiday with her family to Antrim She said she went with her father and mother and her brother Duncan. She knew it was by the sea and that there were white cliffs there. She said the streams ran really fast and they made little rivulets in the ground to get to the sea. She mentioned the red stone and her father told her that black ballast came from the glens near Antrim. So that's quite interesting because Antrim is by the sea and one of the tourist attractions are red hexagonal basalt columns that are near the shore. The rocks of the cliffs are indeed black basalt and black basalt was used as ballast in ships and she's actually right about the cliffs being white. So there are white and black cliffs there. And she's right about little rivulets that run down to the sea. The only thing I'm not sure about with regard to that recount is I wonder if Bridie actually went on this holiday in her later years when she was married as Antrim is pretty much right at the top of Ireland and Cork is right at the bottom. So it would be a long trip to take as a holiday, but I suppose it's not inconceivable. It is very close to Belfast, however, which is where Bridie lived with Brian. So Virginia told them that Bridie got a new sack comforter for her bed when she was 15, which was a coverlet for the bed. It was made for her by a woman somewhere. And she's right. Traditionally, sacks were made from ticking, which was like a heavy woven material that was then stuffed with chaff and worthless husks of corn. So that description is accurate for the mattresses that Bridie would have been used to. In Bridie's day, handmade quilts would have been the toppings on the bed, as quilting was introduced to Ireland by the English gentry in the 18th century. Bridie said she attended school run by a Mrs Strain that she called a day school, Bridie said she stayed away there all week and came back on the weekends. Mr. Strain ran a livery stables. Bridie is exactly right. For girls in the early 1800s, day schools were one of the ways that education was given. And some schools did limit their teachings to young ladies, using the vocabulary of the times, and some offered room and board, or meals only. Standard subjects were elocution, arithmetic, bookkeeping, foreign languages and geography, but the standard of teaching was extremely variable and could range from appalling to good, considering who was doing the teaching. The girls' schools added finishing school classes to raise cultured pupils, so that actually fits very well with Bridie's recollection. She says she learned to read a little bit, but was mostly read to. She was taught how to be a lady and she learned house things and proper things. She also used to dance at the school in the hall that Mrs Strain owned. Bridie said that she was a good dancer even as a child. Now there's been extensive searching for Mrs Strain but nobody has been able to turn anything up yet. Bridie said she learned to play the lyre for two years although she pronounced it the leer. She was only fair at it but she believed she could play it now. She said Duncan played better, but she doesn't mention if it was Duncan her brother or Duncan her father. Bridie remembers her mother making her a beautiful dress as they were going to have guests, and those guests were Mr. John McCarthy and his son, Brian. Brian was 19 years old when he first met Bridie. Bridie herself was 17. So Maury asked Bridie, did she like Brian when she first met him? And she said, no. She said he was all right. He wasn't anything. Maury then asked her how she ended up getting engaged to him and she said that Brian came back in the summer and worked in his father's office and she just went with him. Twas just taken for granted, she thought. Brian had no brothers or sisters. His mother had a stillborn child and then passed away. When asked the name of Brian's mother, she said she'd have to look it up in the family Bible as she didn't remember. Brian's grandmother's name was Delillanen. That doesn't appear to be an Irish name and has more of a Germanic origin that doesn't necessarily mean that this discounts anything as there would have been people moving around and emigrating throughout the United Kingdom from Europe and Germany and in fact the current royal family has strong familial connections to Germany that go back to this time period and well before beginning in the 1700s with the coronation of George Ludwig also known as George the After Bridie and Brian got married in Cork it sounds like they then moved straight away to start their new life in Belfast. Virginia describes that Bridie's father was very unhappy when Bridie moved to Belfast because they took the horse but he was worried. He felt like he was losing his daughter. He felt like he'd lost too much and Bridie was going to be too far away. He became so upset that he went to bed over it, which made Bridie unhappy to go. So Bridie travelled in a livery carriage from Cork to Belfast, and she remembered going through Morn, Munster, Carlingford and a place called Bailing's Crossing. Indeed, all of these places do exist and they are in the right direction to head from Cork to Belfast. While at first unable to find Bailing's Crossing on a map, while talking to a neighbour when staying at a friend's house, That woman told Maury that she'd spent a few years in Northern Ireland during World War II. She said it wasn't on the map, it was just a tiny little crossing. This fact was also reconfirmed when talking to another woman they'd encountered when they noticed that she had a thick Irish brogue. On a whim, Maury asked the woman if she'd ever heard of Bailings Crossing and she confirmed that she'd been through Bailings Crossing many a time. Bailing's Crossing is close to Belfast and would probably have been one of the latest stops that Bridie remembered on her long journey north. And I'll beg your patience here and we'll continue Bridie's life in Belfast in a few days time. Thank you so much for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them. And I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon, hopefully in a few days, with the rest of this intriguing tale. But until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose.